Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week, we're talking about Excalibur 48, Irish Stew, in which the team makes new frenemies and digs up new enemies and Widget gets an extreme makeover. Excalibur number 48 was originally published in March 1992, and the creative team is Alan Davis on writing and pencils, Mark Farmer on inks, Glynis Oliver on colors, Michael Heisler on letters, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. We have won battles against armies, and our one man defeats all my knights. He's a mighty opponent. We are deep in the throes of mystical, magical mix-em-ups this week, but I'm not mad at it. The Excalibur team's back together, and so is ours, though of course we never really left. But who are we? Starting with myself, I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write about stuff and talk about stuff, including Excalibur a lot, obviously. You can find me in academic places writing about comics, all the leading comics journals if you're in that field, or a number of websites doing pop academic work, including Shelf Dust and Middle spaces and comics xf and comic book herald most recently and i am as always kurt bogner's hardworking, unofficial pr manager and he's got a few moving scenes in this issue which we're probably going to talk about not a huge spotlight on him this week though which is okay we've got lots of other things to talk about i am joined as always by mav if you would like to reintroduce yourself to our listeners sure hello my name is christopher maverick but you can call me mav and i am an instructor of English and cultural studies and literature and lots of different stuff at lots of different places lately. I've been working at like several schools. Um, I host another show called The Vox Popcast where we discuss pop culture and, and, and lots of things. And I study uh, like Anna, um, sexuality, but also and gender, but also uh, race and culture and class in pop culture. And today I'm, I'm very excited to talk about, uh, you know, a great character and a great story. This is just something I've come up with off the top of my head that, you know, for no <laughs> apparent reason and not to screw anything up that comes that happens later so you know just keep that in mind <laughs> <God>. <laughs> wow the the fair on slander is beginning early on this podcast oh no 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 that, that's not why oh okay carry on <laughs> <laughs> never mind that i misread no, you no. <laughs> i'm i'm a big fair on fan i too oh, would well. like for people to watch well i would love yeah. if people just carried oh, me around and and my feet never had to touch the floor that sounds great so you know <laughs> sure wearing boar skin booties <laughs> yeah that's how it look, they look really comfy <laughs> all right well andrew remind our listeners of what you get up to 
Hey, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University and project lead for the Claremont Run, a project that owes a tremendous debt to today's guest. Uh, and I was, unlike Mav, thinking about why I don't like Farron, a sheltered, <laughs> overprivileged, arrogant, entitled ivory tower like overachiever. <laughs> and then I, I realized that Farron is basically me. So now I have to realize <laughs> oh, that yeah. I don't like myself. And oh, now no, I have to hate no. Farron further for the cruel mirror that he keeps holding up to my face. You're, you're not, you're nothing like Farron. No, Andrew, please, please no. <laughs> You're the anti-Farron, Andrew. We are joined this week, as Andrew alluded to, by the man who wrote the book about X-Men, one of them anyway, but a very good one. The pod is jubilant to welcome Dr. Joseph Dorowski. Welcome, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on. We are thrilled to have you, and I'll tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Dr. Joseph Dorowski has a PhD in American Studies from Michigan State University. His research focuses primarily on American pop culture. He has edited nine, count him, nine essay collections on superhero comics. He is also the author of the book X-Men and the Mutant Metaphor, and gender in the comic books and the co-author of cheers a cultural history and fraser a cultural history with his sister kate dorowski in the podcasting realm he hosts the protagonist podcast where joe and a guest discuss a great character in a great story each and every week oh that's that's odd <laughs> yeah uh, yeah mav is a frequent guest on the protagonist podcast <laughs> now joe we've been wanting to get you on the podcast for a while and i know it's been a while um but we're so thrilled that you're here now and i want to talk about oh god i'm sorry i'm like really losing it this particular evening i'll get my mojo back um, so now that a we've very got... intense uh day of tweeting yeah That's i know true. to be honest oh, wow, it wow, actually yeah. take a lot out of me <laughs> <laughs> the panel, my panel analysis is not anything to be sniffed at so yeah, if I'm a little bit brain dead today, I did pretty much, well, this is at the time of recording, I did pretty much lose all of yesterday, keeping an eye on our panel by panel tweet storm of Excalibur 45, which was a whole lot of fun and also a whole lot of work because I really couldn't step away because it was like every time I did step away for half an hour, I would come back and there'd be like 30 Twitter notifications. And I'm one of those people that <laughs> if I've got like more than 10 emails in my inbox, I'm like freaking out. I got to get it dealt with. And so I'm accustomed to about like maximum five notifications at a time so when there's that many i i, I don't know what to do but it I was am not great that person yeah <laughs> I, uh... I have thousands of unread messages at all times so I, i'm not organized i just when there's a pile of stuff it freaks me out so i just have to deal Fair with enough. it <laughs> but anyway it was really really great it was a really 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 fun day um and by the time you listen to this podcast you'd be like what you're talking about something from four weeks ago but anyway <laughs> Podcast time travel, as Mav always says. Yes. Um, anyway, let's get back to our guest. Um, I wanted to talk to you, Joe, as we often do when someone is a first-time guest on our podcast about your comics origin story. Obviously, I know you know your comics, but I don't know that story. So tell us a little bit about it. I want to know how you started studying comics, too, but let's start with when you started reading them. So my memory is that as a child in a grocery store, my mom would <laughs> grab a comic book from a spinner rack to keep me quiet while she did grocery shopping. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And the other part of this is that I grabbed an issue of the X-Men. This is before the X-Men cartoon. I never heard of them other than I remember on a Nickelodeon game show when they asked the kids to tell them something about themselves. One of them had said that they loved the X-Men comic books. And so because of that kid on a random X <laughs> oh or a Nickelodeon wow. game show, Episode I grabbed... Double Dare, probably. <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably Double Dare or Legends of the Hidden Temple. One of those. Mm -hmm. um, 
I grabbed Uncanny X-Men. I believe it's number 282. It was it was in the Muir Island saga. Um, so just after Chris Claremont had left Uncanny X-Men is the issue I grabbed. It was the end of a three-part story. I think it's a trilogy, but with some, I've later found out there were some X-Factor issues that tied in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Fabian Nicieza was the author, uh, writer on the on the, the first issue I ever read. Dozens okay. of characters I had never heard of. I had no <laughs> idea what their powers were. End of a storyline that makes no sense. And I was hooked immediately. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <laughs> I love that. And uh so since then like X-Men was like my series like just because that was the first one I grabbed off of that comic book spinner rack like I just was uh when I had allowance money or I could get something I always wanted the X-Men comic book for that month. So did you kind of continue following it like throughout your teen years into your adult years? Uh yeah, pretty much through my teen years like I remember I got I got a paper route basically so I could have comic book money. Uh, <laughs> and uh, when when I was working part time, I definitely had a comic book budget allotted in there. There was a brief period early on in my college career where I thought, I don't know if I can do this anymore. But then that quickly passed. <laughs> and I, uh, I still follow comic books closely. So how did you make the jump from being somebody who loves comics to somebody who writes about comics and studies comics? What is your academic comics origin story? It was somewhat accidental in that in my undergrad as an English major, I would sometimes write on superior comic books just to be that student. Not mm-hmm. because I thought I <laughs> I was like breaking new ground. I just, you know, didn't want to be like everyone else writing about the canon of literature. So I would write about uh, comic books. And then as I was finishing up my undergrad, didn't know what I wanted to do next. And so I kind of applied to a master's program just to like hit pause on entering real life. 17th grade, yes. Yep. And <laughs> I got into the master's program where I had just completed my undergrad and a professor for whom I had written a paper on Spider-Man films stopped me in the hallway and said, I saw you just went and uh, got accepted into the master's program. If you want to write your thesis on superheroes, I loved your Spider-Man paper and I'll chair your committee. I didn't know how to get a committee formed. I didn't know what was going on at all. And I immediately said yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know what a thesis was <laughs> yep i think in my application i said i was i was going to focus on shakespeare and british lit uh <laughs> but because of that conversation in the hallway i immediately pivoted to writing a master's thesis on american superhero comic books and then once again wrapping up my master's degree i didn't quite know what i wanted to do with my life so i applied to phd programs and <laughs> got accepted to michigan state which houses uh, a massive yes, comic art collection yes. in mm-hmm. their uh in their special collections and is very friendly towards pop culture studies and i i was pitching myself as doing Doing American pop culture with an emphasis on American comic books for, for my dissertation. And so I was in there. That's where I wrote my dissertation on race and gender in the X-Men comic books, which became the book X-Men and the Mutant Metaphor. So talk us through that book a little bit. Like, how did you pick the focus for that book? And I mean, we talk a lot on the podcast about the mutant metaphor, but I think it kind of means different things to different people. And it's such a flexible concept. So I hate doing the question of like, explain your book to us in five yeah. minutes. But, um, <laughs> you know, but can you walk- explain your book to us? Yeah. Can you you, like walk us through kind of the genesis of the book in terms of why did you think it was particularly important to write this book about this franchise of comics? Yeah, I think the X-Men within comic book fandom is very much known for this concept of the mutant metaphor, as ill-defined as that may be sometimes. And it immediately gives a sense of thematic heft, I think, to that series that other series do have, but maybe it's not as much text to subtext in some of those other series whereas with the x-men yeah, often the, yeah. the the thematic heft is has become text and so i think that made it an easier one to give a foothold to 
and explain to like academic advisors who weren't reading comic books like why this one was worth writing a, a PhD dissertation on. You you said like we always talk about the mutant metaphor, but it means different things to different people. I I was able to interview a bunch of creators, and I found it means different things to different creators. <laughs> and yeah, a lot of them yeah. did also immediately talk about that it means different things to the readers. Like when they hear from readers, they they talk about different things that it has has meant to them. And I thought we have this fascinating. At the time I was doing my dissertation, I I, I did about forty years of texts of a monthly narrative except for the reprint years uh where we're gonna have a story that is on the one hand continuous but on the other hand like so prolonged and episodic and responding to so many different moments in our culture that it would be fascinating to see the evolution of how the mutant metaphor gets employed within within the series particularly for a series that if it's uh, some of this is the self-mythologizing of stanley and other creators that like you know it began as like this civil rights metaphor you read those early issues and you're like i don't know that it did yeah (laughs) (laughs) um (laughs) really really not sure on that <laughs> uh, but I had never gone back and read other than like the first issue, which I had in some reprints. Like I just, there's issues of access uh, or had been, it, it became less of an issue even while I was in grad school, um, being able to access both because of the Michigan state university collection and things like Marvel digital comics unlimited. Um, I was able to, to read so much more and start to say like, you know what, they're, it's, it's not what I thought it was going to be. And I can see like moments of sea change where something's introduced that is clearly reacting to the possibility of employing the unit metaphor in a way that it hadn't been employed before so things like in the Mm -hmm. 90s introducing the legacy virus which feels like it has a very direct ratio to the AIDS virus and what does that mean for how you know what kind of prejudice is being explored in this superhero soap opera oh I could ask you so many more questions related to that I mean can I ask you a question about how do you see kind of the discourse in terms of academic discourse around X-Men comics kind of changing since the publication of your book because it seems like the kind of thing that's grown in leaps and bounds though admittedly I've got kind of, you know, Claremont Studies goggles about it because of doing this (laughs) podcast with Andrew and because of, you know, the nature of my Twitter account and whatnot. But have you seen kind of academic discourse about X-Men comics sort of growing up since the publication of that book? Yes. And I know I want to say it's my book is responsible for this. (laughs) I just think (laughs) Absolutely. Take the credit, Joe. Uh, I'm good with it. Uh, One example of a growing recognition that both uh, in the general sense, our popular culture that is, you know, mass produced and mass consumed is worth looking at more intently instead of Mm -hmm. strictly saying only those things of like, artistic merit and you know the literary canon and all those things are worth studying it's like no you know what is actually affecting or uh, most people are, or more people are interacting with it's worth looking at those more closely and within that wave of the acceptance of more popular culture studies comic book studies as a whole field has, has definitely exploded so far beyond when i started you know when i was wandering that hall and a, an advisor said hey i'd be interested in doing something on on superheroes and i could you know at the time i could grab an awful lot you know a fair percentage of the academic work that had been published on comics i was able to and now like you look at the the new listings from university oh, of press or mcfarland yeah. or you know so many presses it's like oh there's just so much i can't i can't keep up <laughs> uh, with with everything that's being done and then i think within the field of comic book studies because of the i, I think inherently interesting aspect of this mutant metaphor x-men is one area that has seen a greater exploration and then even with you know the kind of like auteur nature of chris claremont being a guiding hand for so long it becomes fascinating about the relationship between creator and a very popular work that on the one hand is corporate owned and has had so many collaborators but on the other hand you can also point to say like there's one singular vision that is really responsible for a lot of how we receive the x-men and perceive the x-men yeah i mean does does that make sense to you andrew 
I, it just it seems to me like X-Men is just so perfectly situated for that academic reevaluation, like for the reasons that Joe just said, you know, because of the Claremont connection. And we can sort of link that back to certain auteur theories that sort of relates to film studies and literature studies. But also that because of that mutant metaphor, you know, it seems especially primed for those reevaluations of pop culture as being sort of more complex than some people initially assumed it to be. I mean, do those kind of things resonate with you and your work, Andrew? Yeah, 100 percent. I think that there's a lot happening in, in Claremont's work from an artistic perspective, from a representational perspective, and exactly as Joe was saying, just the unusualness of the sample, right? A 16-year single-author run. We don't get mm-hmm. those mm-hmm. Uh, other than Eric Larson recently, and I don't even know if you can call that totally continuous. So, no, so, Larson's, Larson's missed. Uh, Larson has missed three months um, during the entire run when his house burned down. He's actually been phenomenal. Wow! <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize yeah. it was that good. Hey, we totally, we totally derailed you, Andrew. So please, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, no worries. I, I wanted to ask Joe about content analysis because because he he does content analysis in, in X Men: The Mutant Metaphor. Um, and in like my work, I I can't even tell you how often I have to apologize for doing math <laughs> and applying it to comics. Yeah. And it's so frustrating because I'm like, uh-huh. why are you mad at me for interdisciplinary research? Um, I, I was just wondering what sort of spurred that and what you got out of it and what kind of um experience that was for you. Yeah. Um. It, it started with just this idea of wondering if I'm going to talk about race and gender, like what is the actual representation of race and gender? And then it's like, well, I can get actual numbers. That's so going to be kind of a pain. And it's not really <laughs> my area. My wife has a PhD in psychology and like new statistics and statistical right. analysis. So she definitely stepped in and like guided some of my methodology <laughs> and I helped ensure, well, you know, double check my math because I'm a humanities person <laughs> um and it's i there's a lot in the book that i'm proud of i do wish i had delved deeper or, or reached out more for some uh like digital humanities cross-disciplinary work like i was just working with or, or guest lectured uh with someone who is doing digital humanities analysis of the peanuts comic strip like all 50 years of it and they have like fascinating representations of like what characters speak to each other uh you know across like every data point for every single panel of all 50 years that they, they culled from online sources that have had people like annotate every every panel of the peanuts comic strip which like i just didn't have this it was me <laughs> sitting there you know with uh you know with the comics that i read and then also the official index of the of the x-men comics that marvel published that lists every right. villain you know every villain and every issue and every team member in every issue and that's what i was really using like when i'm when i was debating i'm like does polaris count as a team member in this issue or is she a guest star yeah. uh, mm-hmm. i would go to that official index of uh, of that but it was really just uh saying to myself like if, if i'm really gonna be concerned with the evolution of of gender portrayal in X-Men and and the portrayal of characters of color in X-Men. Can I nail down like actually how much of, you know, what percentage of them are members of the team? What percentage of them are villains? And I could, I I, I think even more could be done and is being done, obviously, with the Claremont run uh, on that kind of kind of analysis. And I, I love seeing the the amount of granularity and detail that you're able to dig into in your Claremont run research. That just is, is so fascinating to me. Uh, what, what you can pull, like, I, I love it when you do like the the thought bubbles, uh, like, like how many characters have thought bubbles and things like that because it's it's revealing of how the form is very representative of the character right you know like how the story is being told for these characters does impact how we as readers receive these characters in ways that i don't think we're conscious of like it's going to be on the unconscious you know subconscious level but we get so much more interiority through those thought balloons for certain characters and there's an absence for other characters and so what does that say about those characters well can i ask you about some of the conclusions of your findings then joe for the benefit of our listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read your book but hopefully some of them will pick it up i mean what i would were recommend some of the... reaching out to an academic yeah. library it was yeah, done through an academic yeah. public 
language. It cost prohibitive <laughs> for casual I fans. <laughs> I know. Did you see kind of a shift? Because I've seen other scholars describe this, describing kind of a shift from racial metaphors being more prominent in the series to, I mean, you mentioned the legacy virus a little while ago, to sort of sexual metaphors and specifically mm-hmm. queer metaphors becoming more prevalent in more recent years. Oh, absolutely. And other, I, I think there's other kinds of ways that people feel, you know, they feel their sense of difference or their sense of otherness from what they perceive as the majority culture around them that definitely do get explored too. I mean, even just the idea of adolescence and like the mutant power emerging mm-hmm, adolescence, mm-hmm. like there's a lot yeah. of angstiness that can come <laughs> at that particular time <laughs> in life and you feel like no one understands you. And so there's that kind of metaphor can be at play. Definitely LGBTQ metaphors can be at play. Disability and, and mm-hmm. ableism can, can mm-hmm. have been used uh, at, at times throughout throughout the run. And I think it was, um, I'm trying to remember which writer. It, made, it was either Nisia or, or Labdell. They talked about that one of the best things about the mutant metaphor is that flexibility that allows anyone who feels judged, they can find a foothold somewhere in there. And it doesn't matter uh, if that's the intent of the writer. I think, I mean, one of the more surprising ones, I think Labdell said, it was that he was signing a book for someone and said, this is for my brother. He couldn't be here today, but he loves the X-Men because they're so persecuted and he feels like he's persecuted. And he assumed the brother was going to be uh, gay or so, some other thing. And and she said, ah, he's a skinhead and he feels really judged <laughs> oh, for being a, a neo-Nazi yeah. skinhead. And for him, that's something that resonated. And Scott Liddell's like, I don't know if he's understanding the X-Men. <laughs> but that sense of knowing that his lifestyle was outside of the norm led mm-hmm. to the X-Men being his favorite comic book. Oh yeah, that really resonates with some of the conversations we've had on a couple of recent episodes mm-hmm. having to do with racial metaphor and the X-Men and Mav spoke very eloquently about how some Gener- people can miss that message. <laughs> I, I And I'm, I'm, I'm always very hesitant to call it missing. I mean, if you're going yeah, to have yeah, generic yeah. otherism, mm-hmm. then what Lobdell said is absolutely right. If the if the otherism is generic, if a blue character like Nightcrawler or a green, or a green character like the Hulk or or an orange character like the Thing can represent all versions of otherness, then that means it includes skinheads. And I don't have to like that, but I, I understand why that's not the intent. But the mm-hmm. author is dead, so right. Yeah, it's <laughs> at that point we're talking about audience reception, not authorial intent. Mm-hmm. All right, let's switch to a sunnier topic, which is <laughs> not, <laughs> yes, I did not expect yeah, skinheads in this issue. This <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, let me ask you about Excalibur just briefly before we get to our mm-hmm. issue summary. Where does Excalibur fit to you within the larger X-Men franchise? Why are we doing a podcast about this series, Joe? Tell us. So for me, as like uh, a young reader, when I discovered the X-Men franchise and I discovered there were all these ancillary X-Men titles, Excalibur was always like one step further removed. And it's not just because... It was, uh, you know, this different team over in Europe. It was actually because of the price point. It was more expensive than the other X-Men comics. So I would probably not pick up Excalibur, even if I might pick up a random issue of X-Factor or or X-Force. You know, that, that was... That would be out at the time because Excalibur had, uh, I, I think it was $1.75 was its cover price at a time when the other ones were $1. When I'm using paper route money <laughs> to buy comic books, that made Excalibur <laughs> feel like that's a different threshold over there. <laughs> and so um, it was one that a bunch of my other brother or my brothers also got into comics. And so we would like, if any of us owned a comic, we'd all read that that comic. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, my brother, John, who has been on the podcast, he read more Excalibur mm-hmm. than I did. And so I'd read his Excalibur issues whenever he got them, which is just, again, because the price point, I think it wasn't quite as often. So it always felt like something that was just interesting but ancillary <laughs> to mm-hmm. x-men and now that i've read a good chunk of the excalibur run i think that the even though i was rooted in the economics of being 
the extreme limitations of paper route money, I think that's still an okay take on Excalibur. It's interesting, but ancillary to X-Men yeah. comics. Yeah, I mean, I think that's fair. I mean, I just, I kept thinking about the mutant metaphor as you were talking and the ways that it does and doesn't apply to Excalibur. And it does feel ancillary in the sense that that context is so much less crucial mm-hmm. to the stories that we have in Excalibur in a lot of ways. And well, even yeah. I was, I was thinking when I, because I've reread a lot of Excalibur in preparation for this. My goal was to read all 48 issues. I didn't get quite there. I read <laughs> probably 35 of the issues and then jumped up to 48. I'm like, okay, I just gotta. <laughs> that is okay but uh the the intro paragraph at the top of every comic like in the uncanny x-men i can still recite you know sworn to protect Mm -hmm. a world that hates and fears them like we know that and excalibur's is uh it lists the characters uh, in somewhat odd ways uh and then says forged in the fires of their tragic past they have banded together to fight modern day uh, a modern day crusade against the forces of evil and that doesn't resonate the way (laughs) sworn to protect a world that hates and fears them resonates like it doesn't uh it, it doesn't feel distinguished from generic comic book right yeah and i mean that's like tag is getting increasingly strange because that tragic origin i mean you know now we know the x-men aren't dead and everything so it's sort of like becoming stranger and stranger yeah i mean yeah i mean that's actually kind of a good hook for this issue uh joe since we are having kind of a new status quo built up in this issue to a certain extent so let's talk about that and talk about where this series is heading beginning at this issue that finally reunites the team after some soul searching and character building so let's start with our issue summary i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod we'd never ask you to relinquish the phoenix force even when you're not really using it but as always let's start digging with a plot summary Excalibur number 48 opens in County Sligo, Ireland, where a boy reads a passage from W.B. Yeats. He has an elf in appearance and hovers above the ground as he reads. Hmm, wonder who this is. As Excalibur's jet screams through the sky above, the young man, Farron, comes to terms with his destiny. When his feet touch the ground for the first time, he will inherit the powers of his ancestor, which will in turn equip him to combat the anti-Phoenix and inherit the powers of the Phoenix for himself. Meanwhile, Excalibur arrive at the site of the archaeological dig that's been occupying Kitty and Alistair, a hop, skip, and a jump away from Farron's location. Kitty takes point, explaining the situation. They've discovered an underground chamber that, despite all the best efforts of their technology and Kitty's phasing power, they haven't been able to access. Kirk comes up with a plan. Kitty phases Rachel into the chamber while Brian, Megan, and Cerise dig a tunnel for everybody else. Kitty and Rachel have no trouble reaching the chamber with their combined powers, but when they arrive, Kitty collapses. Rachel tries to help her, but she's aged and lies dead. Rachel is then confronted by numerous figures from her traumatic past, all of whom urge her to surrender the Phoenix Force. Back on the surface, Excalibur continues digging their tunnel in the pouring rain, and the monks who care for Farron prepare to place him on the ground for the first time. The moment Farron's bare feet touch the ground, the earth begins to tremble, becoming an earthquake as lightning arcs into Farron's body. The earthquake helps Excalibur break into the chamber, and there's a blinding light which becomes an angry dude. It's the Anti-Phoenix. Excalibur fights some monsters created by the Anti-Phoenix, which are dispatched by Kylan's ever-useful magic swords. Eventually, the Anti-Phoenix gets away. Farron yells at Rachel, but Kitty's not having that. They decide to retreat to the lighthouse to track the Anti-Phoenix. Farron insists on accompanying them. On the plane ride home, everyone congratulates Kylan for being awesome, and asks about his as-yet-undisclosed mutant power. Turns out, it has nothing to do with being furry sword fighting. Instead, he has the mutant power to precisely reproduce any sound. Comedy ensues. But it's a short-lived comedic respite because as they approach the lighthouse, they're confronted with an eerie scene. The causeway is littered with robot bodies in various stages of evolution. On closer inspection, they realize it's a vast series of widget bodies. Lockheed beckons them into the lighthouse, where they find widget has consumed their train and become something else. 
part metal, part ethereal. Suddenly, they realize Rachel is not entirely present. She's having a very vivid vision. In her head, she sees an abandoned warehouse in London where Necrom stands in a room surrounded by occult symbols. Through a broken window, the anti-phoenix enters and is absorbed by Necrom. They are too late. Necrom's quest for the phoenix has begun. So another big cliffhanger at the end of this issue. Davis has been killing it with the cliffhangers throughout this run. We will certainly be talking about the all-new, all-different widget in future issues. But for now, let's talk about everything else, starting with some first impressions. As our honored guest, Joe, I will welcome your first impressions first. Um, anything that particularly stood out to you about this issue that you're particularly eager to discuss? I just want to recognize it's on one of the first pages. I'm, I read this uh, through like the panel hopping on, on Marvel and Metis. I'm not 100% sure, mm-hmm. sure what page, but the close up of Brother Francis's face is just an amazing individual piece of art where mm-hmm. some comic book artists, when it's not one of the main characters, you get like generic face for a character. Yeah. This Brother F- Francis by, by Davis is just amazing. The way the <laughs> eyebrows and, and the hair over the ears and, and the shape of the ear, like everything is just, this is a fully formed person right here. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I've read a lot of comics. There are a lot of like generic faces that various artists have where it's like, okay, I don't know who this is. And it's just so distinct. I just want to shout out Davis's art. We're always happy to do that. I mean, there was a little dedication to his father in this issue. Yeah, I saw that. I wondered if that was related. It would be nice if that happened to be related to that face, but I am not totally sure. But if one of our listeners knows, they can let us know. Um, other first impressions, Joe? I kind of feel as, a, as I've, in a fairly short amount of time, read a goodly chunk of Excalibur leading up to this one. I feel about the Excalibur comic books like I do the X-Men film franchise. Wildly varying quality, but always interesting. <laughs> okay okay uh like there's some stories that i read i'm like i don't know that that story needed to be told but there it was and uh getting into this issue i feel like that sense of excitement of like oh this is this is new this is different and i I, I, like i didn't read ahead so i don't know how much this is all gonna land like i recognize all like there's a bunch of characters that are being introduced and established part of the team that i remember as issues that i read years ago you know as Mm -hmm. as part of the excalibur team it's like oh here here, here's where they come in but it kind of had for me like that that buzzy excitement of like oh this this is all interesting setup but i don't know how well the payoff is gonna all land Yes, we will be unwinding the payoff in many, many episodes still to come because this, this storyline is going to continue for quite a while. Um, other first impressions from Andrew and Mav. Well, we've been tracking sort of the, the evolution of the story of, you know, the Phoenix Force um, uh, through yes, Rachel. Yes. One of the things I find really interesting about this issue is pivoting the Phoenix mythology, which is based in um, on Kabbalah and Wicca, essentially, um, pivoting mm-hmm. from that to a more sort of Christian configuration with the idea mm-hmm. of the anti-Phoenix and the sort of monk culture surrounding it. Um, I find that really an interesting choice and kind of a strong choice. Um, I, I think it pays off yeah. in this story, but I'm also a little sad to see some of that um, um, pre- previous sort of Wicca and Kabbalah stuff go. Yeah, I mean, when you said like a strong choice, I was like, oh, you mean a bad choice? Because I mean, <laughs> I, I kind don't of know. mean a bad choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it does say work that. for the story, for sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, and as we all know, this is the last word on the Phoenix Force. No one else is ever going to touch on this <laughs> nope, and nope. reimagine that mythology. <laughs> not in the mm-hmm. certainly not in the last you know month or two, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we'll talk more about that. But uh, how about you, Mav? Anything that you're particularly eager to 
to discuss. Particularly, um, no, this one's weird. I don't dislike this book. I, I don't love it either. I think this is a par for the course book for Davis. Like, you know, it's the start of a story. I think the things that are well done in it, in particular, are Farron. I made my joke about not hating him. I actually do. My joke was more that I just wanted to steal oh. Joe's tagline just because he was a friend of mine. But, but um, so I needed to make Farron the protagonist in order to like sell the joke mm-hmm. at the beginning of uh, at the beginning of the show. What I think is great about Farron, his first appearance we are introduced to this character on page two of this book from essentially a cold open, which you would call, if you were watching a television show, this would be a cold open. This would be the scene that happens before the opening credits. Yeah. And here's this kid floating here, reading his book, and I hate him. You just look at Farron and you know <laughs> you're supposed to hate that kid. It's a very punchable face. That <laughs> he, yeah, is yeah. It's just, if you're familiar, if you're familiar with, um, with the comic strip, <sighs> Peanuts, the story of Charlie Brown. The very first episode, the very first Peanuts comic strip is these characters. Charlie Brown looks a little different, um, but these characters are just saying, oh, there goes good old Charlie Brown. Yep, that's good old Charlie Brown. There goes good old Charlie Brown. And then he leaves. And then the one kid goes, God, I hate that kid. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the first joke in Peanuts. And Charlie Brown becomes more lovable as time goes on. But the entire premise of him is like, we just want to set up that you are not supposed to like this guy. And unlike Charlie Brown, who becomes more likable, Baron does not. (laughs) And, And like... Like there are points in the series where they will try to redeem him a little bit because you know you're like oh he's just a kid he doesn't know what he's doing but like just from this first shot I knew oh I am supposed to dislike you and somehow viscerally I just do so that so so that's one of the things that I think is done well I know we're not going to talk about it a lot so just as a as a just a little gripe of mine I feel like uh, there's a thing going on through this issue especially but it happens in a couple other issues and it's especially prevalent here Davis seems to be very very bitter that they took the blackbird away from him <laughs> true <laughs> and it just and in this issue it just really stands out so much so that that like I remember noticing it 20, 30 years ago when I read this originally, I got, uh, th- almost 30 years ago, and then rereading it again um, this last week, I go, oh, yeah, yeah, they took the plane from him, and he doesn't like that. So there's a lot of, <laughs> yeah, so I have my own plane, and it's a cooler plane. It can, it can, <laughs> my plane can hover, and it can fly, and it's got a robot, and it, and it flies oh itself, God. and it can turn invisible. My plane's so much cooler than your stupid plane. Like, there's a lot oh of that God. going on in this issue. <laughs> <laughs> and it's weird and it just feels like like i don't know why there aren't two blackbirds I was, I it's not like say... I mean, the sr 71 blackbirds are real plane yeah. they changed it for the comic but like you could just make another plane <laughs> but no no they're He's gonna, gonna do be this plane angrily thing. <laughs> uh mentioning it. i was wondering this is an era where you would still have like the kind of tight continuity where they would actually say like if wolverine's appearing in an issue over here we're taking him out of this comic for this month because yes. he's not here yeah whereas now it's like wolverine could be everywhere and who cares would they today he would just draw the blackbird and no editor would say anything right he would yep. just <laughs> still <laughs> they have two now <laughs> yeah exactly and the editor wouldn't even you know be like ah yeah but, <laughs> but i think at that point there was just tighter efforts to really say this is one grand cohesive narrative charles and brian are both very very wealthy why aren't there two planes <laughs> they can afford a second plane i don't understand this they have basements with like alien technology like in multiple locations just buy a second plane it's i cool. mean they're gonna have plenty of mechanics of just floating around just build a plane out of widgets other bodies <laughs> right they built an anti-gravity elevator two issues ago <laughs> 
Uh, Those are my first impressions. (laughs) I mean, I have to point out that it's Kurt's plane, too. So, I mean, he's the one who's specifically been stolen from. He said that because, yeah, but again, it's Kurt's plane because he caught dibs, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) He gets it. He gets it officially given to him many, many, many years later. But yeah, he does call dibs back then. Um, Okay, let's talk about Farron a little bit more. I know we don't want to, but we have to. No, no, Um, no, I do. (laughs) I don't. That was just my intro one. (laughs) Because like, yeah, you both brought up some sort of important things, which is the shift to Christian mythology or uh, Christian belief systems, um, whatever whatever we want to call that. And also the hateableness of this character. I mean, do you think the hateableness of the character is deliberate in these opening pages? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I Absolutely. saw it with Micromax too. Davis yes. is clearly mm-hmm. trying to bring back those detestable mm-hmm. superheroes. Oh yeah. Well, well, let's do, let's do some analysis of that. If you're going to make an argument for why he gets represented as hateable in these opening pages. I mean, why is it the character design? Is it the dialogue? Is it the setup? Is it the obnoxious discussion of Yates? Like, what is it? Well, I think the idea <laughs> Anybody, anybody who very... studies literature sucks. Is about... <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> the, the setup of the like chosen one. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, the time we're writing this in the early '90s, I think that's already become very contestable, very, very detestable. Mm-hmm. Uh, so having him be isolated from society, and again, as Mav said, like his feet literally don't touch the ground, which, by the way, is a thing in um, um, the Nahiwa culture and in um, Bali, I believe, uh, where they do. Uh, similar practices um so so that idea of like hyper privilege in some ways i I think that's really what davis wanted to bring to the forefront and and having him be this sort of like pale elf-like creature who's doted upon and whines like a child all all of that contributes to uh, again mav described it better as this imminent sort of punchableness sorry that was joe who described it that way (laughs) uh of of farron i think also like one of his first bits of dialogue is don't be sad brother francis i accept my destiny i am (laughs) farron which is simultaneously (laughs) so full of like self-importance and a martyr syndrome that (laughs) i i think that combination just makes you frustrated it's almost Uh, passive aggressive yes 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 what's amazing about it is it should be tragic right so like Mm -hmm. if you told this story with a a slight tweak to the left you could make Theron, like he is a child he is a child whose childhood has been stolen from him well okay compared to a movie called the last emperor if you've ever seen the last emperor it's yeah, about yeah. the last emperor of china phenomenal film phenomenal film where you feel sorry for the protagonist it's a biopic so it's a real it's a story about a real person but you feel sorry for him the entire film because you're like they took this two-year-old i think when he first when he, when he first ascends to the throne and they essentially hoisted nigh godhood upon him and just made him deal with it and his life becomes weird and he doesn't know how to deal with it and you feel sorry for for him the entire film you don't feel that here because of this little tweak to just you know uh joe you just pointed out don't be sad brother i accept Accept my destiny. I am Farron. He's too glib and joyous about it. And, you know, the pasty white skin, not something he can control, but just some sort of a, you know, Davis could have controlled it. He's drawn in such a way as to let you know he's sitting there floating. He feels like he's better than you. And, this, and it's not just this page. 
everything in the rest of this book and in the next 20 that he's going to appear in back up the fact that <laughs> Farron does think that he is better than you and you know he tolerates our kind and that makes you not like him and I think that's important because I do think that you said the unlikable heroes with the with the chosen one this is also the era where we're about to get like Buffy the Vampire Slayer who's very likable right we're, we're, we're about to get lots of chosen one stories Neo in the Matrix is like three years away or four years away or something like that when published um, maybe five I, I don't have to do the math it's 99 this is 90 <laughs> seven um, years away seven years away. seven okay it's coming up and you can do this likably and you can do it tragically and you can make a character where there's pathos in this and davis clearly doesn't want that here he wants you to have disdain for this character who boilers for things that are going to happen he's not wrong about anything like even in this issue what he's here to help save us from the anti-phoenix which is a bad thing so you know Farron's on our side and he's doing the right thing he's just not likable and I think that's the story and I think that's important because not all heroes have to be likable yeah I mean that's true I mean we certainly will talk about how our mileage is on that as the story evolves but definitely I mean I'm looking at the second page of the comic right now and just the smugness of his smile and expression (laughs) is just very very deliberate like this is a guy who's looking forward to taking power not a guy who's feeling the burden of his stolen childhood and i mean yeah like looking ahead in the later part of the issue the confrontation he has with rachel i mean oh boy <laughs> like you talked about micromax being introduced by calling ray bimbo when we had his introduction in, in excalibur 45 having this little teenage boy have like this no, convo where he's like yeah well, how old do you think his parents supposed to be i think he's like at, like 12 at best 12 it's hard yeah. to say. well so yeah. and again we're getting away from the point where we could pinpoint kitty's age like easily but he's clearly younger than she is i think right now i'd put him at 12 yeah 13 tops and i don't think 13 i think 12 yeah that's sort of what i was thinking but it's still like this young boy sort of (laughs) and the pose even that he does it he's got like his fingers stuck in rachel's face and saying you are not worthy of the phoenix it's like Mm -hmm. oh boy (laughs) just sit down (laughs) we the readers know everything that ray has been through and we the readers love ray and just the impudence there is just unbelievable and it's hard to come back from that impudence i think is the best word we found to describe (laughs) well i mean did you have anything to add to that joe about about farron and sort of his function in this book i mean why are we getting this new this new character introduced for us here i I like what mav said about the idea that someone could be doing the right thing and it doesn't mean you have to like them because so often Mm -hmm. i think in stories we conflate likability and morality and you know just just how we're going to receive the character and i think this is a deliberate choice to say here's someone whose motivations or or the actions they want to undertake we should be rooting for and we're going to dislike them not necessarily because they're gruff and rude in the 90s style but because they're you know a, a little bit pompous but also have this like hint of uh martyr complex where they seem to be wanting everyone to respect them because i'm doing this thing uh and and it's just it's an interesting twist on some of the the character types and as mav i think it was mav that said earlier like the the chosen one narrative had already started to be a little played out i think this is a chance to take like a chosen one character and say 
if you were told you were the chosen one, you might be insufferable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah. What's great about is we, we dislike him on his own merits, which <laughs> is which is which is a it's a choice. It's an interesting choice. We are going to be placed in positions to root for him over the next over the rest of this arc because again, he's in here for the right reason. He's he's done nothing wrong. It's just that he's kind of a little twit. <laughs> we just so like every so literally we don't like him because he's unlikable he is you know which i think is an interesting message for what what joe is just saying i think i think we've got to be able to have stories that have that kind of complex character in exactly the same way as it was innovative you know oh it's peter parker he's a great hero but he can't pay his rent you know like now we've got we've got a kid that we just want to punch you know well, yeah. <laughs> we want to punch a kid <laughs> He's like this, this in theory, like isolated, vulnerable child who we hate, which does like sort of play against type of how children in general tend to function in narrative. So, I mean, I guess he's got that going for him. I mean, well, let's talk about the Phoenix Force stuff a little bit. And I'm almost so tired to even ask that question. Like I put it in the notes, like, let's talk about the latest retconning of the Phoenix Force. And I think I even, I think I even put in the notes, I was like, are we tired or do we want to talk about this? Because we have talked about this. I'm sure I put that exact same question on previous outlines for episodes because this keeps coming up and it keeps coming up in comics to this day. But it is important to this issue, the introduction of the Anti-Phoenix and of course Farron being connected to that. So I'll just ask the question about, you know, what is our mileage on this sort of latest retconning, which is again connected to this latest revisiting of Rachel's trauma, another thing that we've revisited many times in Excalibur. And I'll put it to you first, Joe. I mean, what's your mileage on this latest retcon? Latest, latest circa 1992. <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> I think I always struggled to feel a deep connection to Rachel. I think it's rooted in how I was coming to the X-Men comics at the time, but also this sense of the, the convoluted time travel alternate dimension origin. Mm -hmm. is, I mean, I, it's kind of like that what I said before, like ancillary, but interesting. <laughs> you know, like it just didn't feel as core to the X-Men comics I was reading at the time. And even rereading as much Excalibur as I've done recently, I still kind of feel that. Um, and I mean, Rachel has been used in the core X-Men team and all those other things. It's not just her presence over here in Excalibur. Just as a character, I don't think she ever quite resonated with me the way she has for a lot of other readers and I'm I don't know how to quite put my finger on it and then rooted with all of that is this fairly consistent like re-exploration of her origin story and her connection with the Phoenix Force it feels a little bit like rebooting to try and make it work and I don't know that it ever quite lands for me individually as a reader yeah I mean what do you think Andrew this has obviously been something that we've talked about with you many times on the pod up to this point I think it's too drastic a shift for me a little bit mm. um and there's two reasons for that. The one is just the consistency with the way Rachel's been characterized. You're sort of presenting her with a, a very different set of challenges than you have in the past. Um, and I've been liking the way that Davis was writing Rachel. Um, so far, we talked about her, her pilgrimage and all that kind of stuff. Um, and the other piece that I don't like, or the reason I don't really like this this retcon is there's a chain of custody for the Phoenix mythology. And I talked about this at the opening, um, mm -hmm. where it was very big in, again, Cabal and Wicca, but like it was venerated. Like I, we're doing podcast time travel again because i've been researching claremont's role in the wicca community for yeah, yeah. Um, the claremont run thing uh, and phoenix like the figure of the phoenix as appearing in 1970s x-men comics was deeply celebrated uh, in wicca culture and community and 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 look they're representing us you know what i mean so taking that away and, and putting on it this, this sort of dominant western religious iconicity i don't know it, it just it, it feels like a betrayal of the symbolism at the same time that again the retcon um, maybe betrays Rachel's character arc a little bit, or at least shifts it in a direction that, that feels out of left field for me personally. 
Yeah, I mean, it's hard, right? Because the unlikableness of Farron kind of gives us an out for not accepting that interpretation of the Phoenix Force. Because, I mean, to us as readers... Yeah, because (laughs) to us us as readers, Rachel clearly is the right bearer of the Phoenix Force. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, you know, Dark Phoenix and the Phoenix Force is associated with such a strong feminist legacy that that's part of what makes the Farron confronting Rachel scene just unbearable for me. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But, yeah, I don't know. What were your thoughts, Mav? Caveat that I am much more of a cultural scholar than a theological scholar, but I play one on TV. Theological studies, just a little background for our listeners, is not what I think most people think it is. People, I think, tend to assume that theological studies means Christian studies. It's not the same thing. There are theologians who are, you know, a priest or some other kind of minister, you know, but but if you're actually doing the kind of work that, say, the pop culture and theology blog and book series, just to name something, will do, you are doing the same thing that comparative literature does with cultural studies, where you're using comparative literature to look at different takes from different readings that might be a Marxist reading versus a feminist reading, or maybe both together, or LGBTQ queer reading, you can do that sort of thing. So with the theological reading, you're doing, you're looking at things in context of what does it mean to consider this story in accordance with Wiccan mythology, Christian mythology, Jewish, Jewish mythology, Hindu mythology. And I'm using the words mythology here in, on purpose because the theologian would call them that. That is not a discussion or a, a judgment on whether or not you believe in a particular religion or not. Um, mythos in the classical Greek sense, uh, these are the stories surrounding the theology. These are the stories that encompass that world. So in the same way that we would say the X-Men mythology, they would say the Christian mythology. Okay, situated. <laughs> I... <laughs> I like that Davis in this storyline, not just this issue, but in this entire storyline, he is clearly aware of everything that I just said. I don't know that he is a scholar of it, but he is aware of it and he is trying to do something. Claremont sees the Phoenix as one set mythology. This is an aspect of the fact that Claremont is a singular writer who we've talked about before, wants to be in charge of the X-Men mythology and wants it to be his baby and, you know, Hmm. is upset that other people got to play in the sandbox. Davis is aware that other people are playing in the sandbox, and Davis is telling a story here where he is trying to reconcile the chosen one, as we narrative, is a recurrent theological trope that occurs in Christian mythology. There's a very obvious chosen one, right? (laughs) But like there are chosen ones in lots of theological bins and he appears to be trying to reconcile it with the way that a Wiccan version can look at it as a Christian version. And this is something that other people have tried to do in comics as well. Many of them much better than Davis's. One in particular would be Grant Morrison is very good at trying Mm. to tell this kind of story. (laughs) If you want to just look at somebody who is masterful at it. Another one is Neil Gaiman. He's weird because he'll just, he invents so much of his own stuff that it's not exactly the same thing. But the point being, I find the experiment, the writerly experiment that Davis is doing, very, very fascinating, if maybe a little too smart for the room. And I don't mean our room, I mean for just, (laughs) I mean, I mean, too smart for 
the the context of what he's you know he's trying where he's trying to sell it because it's not like he announced this to anybody this is a very deep bit of storytelling where he's trying to you know ask what's it like to be your own religion this is something that gets that gets dealt dealt with in some particularly heavy issues of thor over over time when you have a good writer um a good writer takes on thor and starts asking what's it like to really be this person who is worshipped. And that's what Rachel's trying to deal with here. And that's what Theron's trying to deal with here. And under both of their understandings of what the Phoenix is in their own religion, they were given this mantle because it belongs to them, not because of anything they've done, but because they are the chosen one. Rachel kind of reluctantly, and Theron embraces it. And that's an interesting connection to make. And, you know, which one of them's right? Are either of them right? All right. Are they both right? Or are they both wrong? Those are interesting stories to tell for me. It is interesting, but, and I mean, this will be something that we're going to talk about on future episodes more, but the unsympatheticness of Farron might be a problem there because yes. we know that characters who lust after power are villainous. I mean, that's mm -hmm. how hero villain stories work. So the fact that Rachel came by her power, honestly, in terms of it being thrust upon her, we already know before the story even gets going that she's the rightful bearer of it because that's how villains and heroes work. So it, I don't know how I classic, feel about that. Yeah. Well, so at least in classical hero narrative, narratives in a classic myth yes if we're going to follow a cambellian monomyth then yeah you you know you're rejecting power you are an unlikely hero who rises from the ashes that's the story of a phoenix right but i think what's interesting is that question of false prophets and false gods in any religion does not necessarily reconcile with the way in humans that we find people pursuing religious office one of the things that people who are not religion one of the problems people who are not people who are not religious often and have with religions is that people who would style themselves even as ministers much less gods are usually very unlikable you know we don't like the idea that you know how dare you say that you are the one who can speak to god you are the devout one you are the important one it's a hard pill to swallow and i i think this story is aware of that i think that's why theron's unlikable is i think we are looking at somebody who you know, how dare you say that you're the one that gets to speak for God is a, it's an important question that I think Davis wants to ask. So I like, again, I think we're supposed to not like him. I, I don't, I'm not saying I like Baron. I think we are, I think I'm hating him as the author intended. Okay. okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that we're going to, that we're going to yeah. come back to. I mean, did you have any thoughts about that show before we kind of move on to something else? Yeah. I, I think in all of these um, reinterpretations of Phoenix or uh, which, which certainly are going to go on well after this, uh, both Rachel and her role and everything. One thing that is explicitly said in this by Rachel is the more power you possess, the more you need limits. That's, uh, you know, that's what in this version, uh, you know, this moment we have where we're saying to it. I think in some ways creators start to feel like the power level of Phoenix is almost like a narrative get out of jail free card. And so we've got to like actually yeah. put some constraints on that or else there's no threat ever to Excalibur mm -hmm. uh, or the X-Men or, you know, whatever team Rachel slash Phoenix slash whoever is in possession of the Phoenix force is on because it is this cosmic level power and so what if you're dealing with like you know an earth-based you know hate group like okay well <laughs> phoenix mm -hmm. can go wipe them out immediately if, if that's what what you wanted you know so i i think so one reason why maybe we we keep constantly coming back to like okay well what is the phoenix force you know how are, how are we going to find this is this effort to to maybe put some limits and modulate the power level a little bit it doesn't yes. work because we're still doing it today oh yeah yeah and, mm -hmm. and I, I i because it's always cool when you get to show off the power of the phoenix again That's uh mean. you know as the big finale <laughs> of a storyline but it's like oh we just showed the power level again okay <laughs> well i mean the problem with it is time of recording echo is the phoenix in marvel comics right now 
now. Um, I don't, and I don't know if that's true when people are listening because it changes that often, right? But at time of recording, Echo from Daredevil Comics, who is a street level hero, now has ultimate cosmic power. And I, I don't like that because I find her far more interesting when she's, you know, yeah. having trouble fighting yeah. like thugs than I do yeah. when she ha- when she can blink and destroy a planet. I, I just, I find Phoenix level powers very problematic and uninteresting. And the fact that I like Rachel is almost an accident, right? Like it, <laughs> because because I think it was done well under Claremont's watch. It was done well. I think Davis will have some hits and some misses with it, but we've talked about it before. Often in these stories, Rachel gets, you know, get, gets dispatched with really, really quickly in some ridiculous amount of way because we've got to take her off the board just to make the story work. You know, mm-hmm. that happens over and over again in Excalibur is, oh my God, Rachel's been overcome by psychic backlash or trauma. Or she uh, got hit in memory head by again. Because, yeah, <laughs> because we need or her she to got not kissed, be there, so Or she, she got kissed and seduced by Paladin. Oh, Sure, whatever. It doesn't matter. But she's, she's got to be weak because there's no kryptonite for her. The story's got to end, you know, like why did Jean die in the first place? Because once you get to that point where she's destroyed a planet, well, I guess we're done with this now. <laughs> you know, there's nowhere else to go, right? That's why she was killed off. And we even say, like we say Phoenix powers what does that actually mean it's kind of like whatever the writer wants to have happen yeah. here she just changed all the molecules why i don't know she yeah, she, she is a literal god <laughs> not a thor like god who's an alien with powers she is a blink and destroy the universe god so what can you really do but i mean it always depends what that kind of power set and that type of character on context right and i mean i do think one of the things that i like here is how it's building a context in which the phoenix horse is going to be very relevant and we can tell a story about rachel that's not just about her being taken off the board by reliving her trauma even though we are doing that here but she doesn't get taken <laughs> off the board by it and she does manage to navigate it and there's a sense that maybe maybe we're moving past that a little bit because you know you think of a character like silver surfer or something he's got the same types of powers and yet you can put that character in contexts that kind of emphasize limits and sort of the contrast between his humanity and his limitless godlike power and i think when rachel stories are done well her humanness shines through and that's sort of what's compelling is sort of the contrast between her cosmic power and her deep deep humanness and we certainly see her humanness coming across in the story at the very least i mean let's talk about some other fun stuff which is like i want to talk about the character building that we have here and the team building because we have the team all back in one place for the first time in some time with the new mm-hmm. members of kylan and cerise who are members cuz well you know they they're here now <laughs> <laughs> Don't ask questions. I know. I kind of think we we have the plane scene in this issue, but I feel like we kind of needed a breakfast scene with everybody just to get everybody sort of acquainted before we. But we get the media res thing here. What I what I wanted was Nightcrawler in front of a wall of monitors with different mutant faces, and then he's just pointing at Cerise and Kylan's faces that are on two of the monitors. Like, okay, that's the team now. Like, we had this whole (laughs) option, but we're going with it. We need to fill out the team. You you two are in, and you know, uh, like some B level x-men characters were also on monitors but they're not getting the call up uh, i wanted them to show up and kitty to just be who the hell are you two people like because because she's not been talking to them because she doesn't know where the blackbird is so like why does she just accept that there's these two people here like she doesn't know where the blackbird is she doesn't know where rachel why rachel doesn't have her powers so they didn't call on the way clearly <laughs> To be as fair as possible, we did have that sort of two times joke in the previous issue of people being like, who the heck are these people? And then, you know, they both repeat their origin stories and everything. And Uh I almost wish that they just done the joke a third time here because it was a good joke and we should just keep it going. But yeah. (laughs) 
I think maybe this kind of underlines one of my problems with Davis's rebuild, though. Like, those characters would be so much more effective to me if they were picked up over the course of story arcs. You know what I mean? That there's a certain so story arc. Now, we get a little bit of that with Kylan, I would argue. But you've got all this happening at once. Widget, Farron, Ceres, Kylan. Um, and I don't know. I, I think you get diminishing <laughs> returns when you try to do it that... Oh, yeah, Michael Max. You try to get diminishing <laughs> returns when you try to do it that quickly. I mean, yeah, I could see that. Well, okay, so do we find any of the moments of character building and team building in this issue effective then? Because we're seeing the characters we get a lot of action scenes and we just sort of get a couple of sort of character moments in this and i mean a lot of it is that rachel flashback which takes up like at least a third of the issue but still we get you know cerise hey, that's and, important and... for anyone who did not know her backstory I know we have to (laughs) let's do it again every well is it just that like every x-men artist wants to draw days of future past and they all just want to want to take a turn on it I mean that seems to kind of be what happens with that flashback but yeah so yeah we get Cerise and Megan obviously fighting side by side for the first time here and and we get Kylan fighting with the team for the first time so I mean Joe did you find any of these any of these team ups effective or interesting or fun yeah I, I think sometimes I give in student writing a note back where I say like there's lots of good ideas here but the presentation isn't quite up to the level of those ideas and i think that's some of what we get with these new characters is the, I, I mean i don't dislike any of these characters it just feels a little rushed you know their their presence is just like they've just been dropped in and um, literally <laughs> yes I, I think some of those moments are meant to be like here's where you're you're seeing what the team dynamic is going to be but i don't know that those moments feel earned you know, it's just kind of like, oh, over oh, here. I, I guess I like the moments by themselves. I don't know that it works as a cohesive issue entirely. I mean, Cerise is the wild card for me at this point because we've had very little to anything in terms of who she is and what her powers are and how she works. And she's really dropped in here because we have had the buildup mm-hmm. with Kylan and we have a sense of what his mission is and everything. But Cerise is just here now and we're going to get more from her. But like her presence is a question for me in this issue. And I think one other thing that kind of rubs me a bit or I catch on a little bit is it feels like a further dilution of what Excalibur is. The team size doubled. <laughs> well, well, but but I mean, so so this is a team of mutants because it's got an X in the title for Marvel. But one of them's a fairy. One of them's well, one's from another dimension in the future, but it's a mutant. <laughs> one's from another dimension that we kind of ran into, and I think is a mutant, right? Kyle, Kylan, he's a mutant, right? Yeah. Uh, you know that's <laughs> that, but it doesn't feel. It more feels like an interdimensional, you know, player. And then we have an alien on the team, so it's feeling less rooted in what you expect from an X-Men comic. I think Kylan had a story that they kind of abandoned because like he should be in an absolute state of grief. The love of his life died like yesterday. I know. know. And... He doesn't seem to recall that. Okay. Except I went and read the, the plot summary of Kylan because I was like, I know, I know a bit about this character, but it's not clicking. So I went and read that because I had to jump a few episodes or issues to read this. I'm like, oh, I just must have missed him dealing with all that. But I guess it's kind of like Luke Skywalker or like Luke Skywalker with his, or well, no, I guess it's Princess Leia with Alderaan. It's Princess like, yeah, we're, we're, we're carrying on. Yeah, I mean, we're ostensibly getting his story continuing, but like, yeah, Sadine death scene was tragic. I'm still reeling from it and we've just moved on. They'd only first started dating two weeks ago, it turns out. <laughs> but he has onomatopoeic mutant powers so that's yes. pretty cool right uh-huh if, if it would ever come up i mean it, i like kylan a lot i like that kylan has a power that is completely irrelevant to what he does i feel the same mm-hmm. way that, that they, the team does oh the fact that you don't have enhanced abilities is actually kind of cooler you know i always um i was a big fan we've talked about this on our twitter feed a lot not really on the show i was a big fan of the marvel superhero role-playing game and there's a power in the marvel superhero role-playing game called ultimate skill ultimate skill is you just have some talent that you're the best at for instance you could be hawkeye right hawkeye is the 
best archer ever, right? You know, there are lots of characters who are superheroes or supervillains who are just good at one relatively human thing. And maybe it's a supernatural power, maybe it's not. I always wanted somebody who was like a great adventurer, but their mutant power was they had ultimate skill at typing. They're a great calligrapher. That's yeah. their mutant power. <laughs> yeah, yeah, was like, typing like, was, was always my one. He's just, you know, they, you know, they are the best typist ever. 300 words a minute. And that is the number I had in my head, Matt. I had 300 words per minute in my head. <laughs> right before you said 300 words per minute. That's what I had in my head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that be great? And then, you know, what do you do? Well, you go out and you fight fight crime with a sword because of course you would because swords are cool. But it has <laughs> And like, why can't you have that? So I love that Kylan has a power that he really never uses. And because he's a mutant, he also ended up being furry. And he just he got the bad end of the x factor factor you know (laughs) (laughs) character rolling (laughs) so i i I love that about him and we don't really get time with it because the team size doubles over the course of like four issues like (laughs) we we went from five key players to really kind of 10 and and not over a lot of time and we don't get a lot of time with it so that that is kind of sad about it It's, it's one of those times where davis bites off more than you can chew yeah i mean as much as i do like the potential for these new characters it does become a little bit frustrating for me going forward because nobody gets enough time it seems like because we've got so many characters to juggle and because the plot just keeps going at like a a crazy pace for for the next issues and we're gonna be facing sort of cosmic conflagrations again like within it within a couple of issues spoilers i won't say more than that but but yeah i don't know i mean the kylan thing we were talking about it in the tweet storm a little bit and like why he hasn't shown up in subsequent comics and to me it's just the gimmick of him is so Excalibur and so even more specifically Davis Mm. you know Mm -hmm. his whole thing is kind of a joke and I don't mean that he's a joke as a character like I know a lot of people really like this character and I think there are a lot of reasons to like this character I think sort of the joke gimmick of him is part of the reason that people like this character but the fact that he has that thing where his actual mutant power is separate from what his more useful powers are (laughs) is such an absurd Excalibur joke Mm -hmm. that it almost can't exist outside of that context and I'm not surprised that people haven't used him for that reason if that makes any sense. In a recent issue of Domino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is great. <laughs> well I mean his most prominent his most prominent um, portrayal in any recent years was in the Age of X-Men series where he was Kurt's trainer which I thought was kind of an adorable role for him giving him a really mm-hmm. hard time on set which is perfect for him. He, we know that he's the superior swordsman but um, yeah I don't know well were there any kind of character moments that we did like in this issue because I think that there you know we all mentioned that we had some moments that we liked in this issue so maybe that's sort of a way of getting at it because there's so much setup in this issue that I feel like we're having a hard time getting a bead on it I love where they're having the conversation where Kylan t- I mean the po- where where this power then comes up and they're just having this talk on the plane it's adorable that feels very Excalibur he's like what can you do it's like oh let's skirt cow okay <laughs> and for them like it feels a little like C3PO telling the Ewoks the story of Star Wars <laughs> or there's, I mean, you could make this power useful. There's a villain, Batman, or is it, I think, oh gosh, he's what? He's a Kevin Smith villain called Anamatopia, and I can't remember if it's from the Daredevil it's run the or, the, green, or the Green Arrow. 
It's the Green Arrow run. It's okay. Uh, yeah, Green Arrow and also Batman because Kevin Smith invented them and he used them in both places. And his power is exactly Kylan. And Smith made it menacing and terrifying in the way that he writes it. I love that Kylan doesn't. It's just this like party trick that he can do. <laughs> you know, like I love that about him. You know, and I think that the fact that like Excalibur is just like that's kind of cool. So I think this is a really great character mo- movement. If it's missing anything, it's that Cerise doesn't speak during it, and it's been thirty years, and I'm still not quite sure what Cerise's powers are. It's just, you know, sort of whatever she conveniently needs to be able to do. She's got solid light constructs yeah, or light. something. Yeah. yeah. Uh, or Which something. Just... I mean, ki- it, kind of. It's like uh, mixing up Songbird and Dazzler a little bit. Maybe right. a little Green Lantern in there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it's not clear. The, the plane scene is great. And I almost feel like through this run of issues we almost needed a whole scene of them just on the plane mm-hmm. <laughs> like mm-hmm. to kind of decompress a little bit we needed a slumber party issue you know what i mean and then they yeah. could talk about the plane a lot more too about how this plane is i like very talky issues of comics i mean we've talked about this before it's true i did like the, the moment where kylan uh, when they're fighting the the mud monsters whatever we want to call those and he gets to deliver this dialogue where he says a physical attack on the earth and rock is futile it is merely the medium used by disembodied demonic force to gain physical effect the enchanted swords of zoria can dissipate the motivating force i love comics. who doesn't love that <laughs> so it makes no sense but it's amazing i love every word that he just said that is some stanley dialogue yes <laughs> and he gets a like sexy as hell hero pose on the end of that page with kind of like the hip tilt and the swords out just real nice pose from kylan i mean we talked in some of the previous issues that he wasn't kind of eroticized like that much and we wondered you know of various reasons for that but he definitely is in that image i mean that that kind of absurd dialogue is one of the things i actually truly love about comics it's like i (laughs) it is good this is everything i want from good old superheroes like there's a flavor to that dialogue that for me it's it's both the uh the 90s comics that I that I was first introduced to, but it also feels like it's harkening back, like Mav said to Stanley. Like this is the the kind of like purple prose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it's so great. Well, and that makes perfect sense for Kylan, though. I mean, he is this character who's an adult, but is a child in some ways. I mean, he has been raised in a world that's basically like a sci-fi pulp fantasy world, and he's just coming straight from that world into our world, and he's sort of imbued with the language of that world. And I think that sort of purity of him you know that he's almost from another different time I and mean, he, he is from another place but i mean he's also from another time in terms of how this character works genre wise i think is part of the charm of this character as well yeah i think going in sort of a opposite genre direction i, I really like the um uh, the scene of widget um, experimenting with all these different bodies and you leave him alone yeah. for a minute and you come back and there's all these iterations yeah uh, constantly improving that's a really cool sort of new wave science fiction idea and very horrifying too i mean like that scene of sort of you know rotting technology and kind of like the uncanniness of that was like very and it's like evolutionary technology so it is just that like creepiness of science not working how science is supposed to work i mean you know like hard robot type science sort of having almost like a biological element in the way that it's evolving i think is some of the disturbingness of that concept i I was just gonna add there's a thing called the singularity in science fiction singularity means a different thing in like all manner of different Mm -hmm. fields but in science fiction it's this idea that um the first ai that can self-replicate and create a better version of itself um the process of it evolving could take take place over seconds you know what i mean 
Uh, and I feel like Widget is riffing on that a little bit here. The idea of just how quickly he's able to uh, evolve to his advanced form. I really like mm-hmm. that. Um, I like that he ate the train just to get rid of it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yes, yeah. there, I, I realize it's because he needs raw material, but also we're done with this storyline and it's just been in the basement for, you know, 20 issues. So let's just, yeah, Widget ate it. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in terms of character moments, I was sort of interested in the reunion of the team since Kurt's like little leadership stint that we've talked about a lot in the past couple of issues. And, you know, seeing how Brian is going to fit into the team and how Kurt is going to fit into the team. Kurt is really taking on the leadership role in this issue. And we already see kind of like the burdens of leadership sort Mm -hmm. of being on his shoulders. You know, they're digging the hole and he's like, oh, are you done digging the hole yet? And they're like, we're going as fast as we can. And he's like, yeah, I know. I just feel really bad that I can't help and i mean obviously he's still dealing with his leg being in a cast and everything but he also has the reflection that you know i sent rachel and kitty down into this hole and it seemed like the logical decision i didn't even think about it i really hope i don't regret it and just seeing those little flashes of sort of that ongoing hero journey for him that was a nice little character touch i appreciated Mm -hmm. i want to point it out because we talked about this a bunch when Kurt took over the tech net and I didn't like it because I felt like it was too easy. This is what I wanted from him there. It mm-hmm. To me, it feels almost like a backslide, but I don't mind because it's better here. That was like where I said I, I didn't feel like it was a good Kurt development issue because it's just like it, he had this moment where he was just like, oh, this bad thing happened to me when I was a leader, uh, when I was a leader a while back, but no time for that. Let's move on. Like I hated it there. This is all I needed. It's still just one panel, but that panel of Kurt just having having a little bit of self-doubt of, wait a minute, did I just send my friends to their death? I probably shouldn't have done that, but I'm the leader. (laughs) Like, it's just literally just one panel of unsureness. I love everything about that page. It makes sense, though, too, in terms of who he's dealing with. I mean, I think he would feel, yeah, less bad sending, like, (laughs) Thug and Pharaoh down into the hole versus Rachel and Kitty, like, the young young women that he feels responsible for to some degree. Yeah, it is different. Yes, I I acknowledge that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But, But just the humanity, I feel more more humanity out of him in this moment <laughs> yeah for sure i mean the other thing i wanted to point out was brian being the one who has the supportive words for kylan because you know we've talked about davis kind of redeeming brian right and it's brian who steps forward it's like you know it's no wonder you need to carry swords oh i'm joking your fighting skills are all the more impressive for their lack of mutant enhancement with the smile and he shares the shares the smile with kylan and just like whoa this is not a version of brian that we've seen before this is a real hero turn for him i mean that's more the line that you would expect to get from kurt but kurt's flying the plane because he's the leader now did you know brian used to be an alcoholic Ah, don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> All smiles. All right, let's move to final thoughts. Um, and I'll give you the last word, Joe, but start with you, Mav. Anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't got a chance to talk about? I think we got most of it. Like I, said, I think this is a interesting issue in that you said that um, maybe everybody just wants to draw Days of Future Past, and maybe that's what it is. It's not establishing who he is as a writer. It's just, you know, this is the beginning of a trade paperback. It's the beginning of a story. It, it's interesting. We didn't really talk about the idea of what an anti-Phoenix is because it's not really clear other than the fact that yeah i've heard the word antichrist before so anti-phoenix i guess i'm on board i guess and a lot of this book just feels like sort of a we got to put the pieces on the board we have to do the setup in order to tell this story and we talked about that again you know a, a while back when we were just starting that three episode arc with rachel and megan and nothing really happened this feels like <laughs> an, an, again a lot of 
nothing's actually happening, but I can I can close my eyes and imagine and see where it's going to go. So I'm interested. You know, he, he walked the line. It was fine. Thanks, <laughs> <Wow. laughs> praise. I, I, and I don't mean that negatively. I don't. I, don't. I know it sounds negatively. Uh, it sounds like negative, but I'm like, it, no, this is, you know, the beginning of a story. I can't be like, oh, wow, it's amazing because Necrom got yeah, the power. Okay. I mean, okay. I mean, yeah, I want to see what happens. Sure. I think like <laughs> this one and sort of like the next like three issues benefit from being read together. And it's sort yes. of been a challenge, yeah. I think, today to yes. kind of stay focused on this That's issue. That's kind of where I'm trying to, yes. I, mm-hmm. I, like, this is it, inoffensive. It's good setup for more interesting things. <laughs> Thank you for coming on for the setup issue, Joe. <laughs> 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 Andrew, anything that you were particularly anxious to discuss? Um, just a juvenile comparison in the the scene where the anti phoenix comes to Necrom. I had Ghostbusters in my head. <laughs> like, are you the gatekeeper? Are you the key, the master? key master? And then they totally kissed. So, <laughs> so there was a payoff for that stupid, stupid analogy. How often do you have Ghostbusters in your head? Too just... often. Wait. <laughs> How about you, Joe? I will. I will. I'll, I'll wait. Do I have any final thoughts? I guess I should think about whether I have any final thoughts. I mean, not really. I mean, again, I'm like kind of struggling because I just it's like it's going to sound to our listeners like we hated this issue or something. No. I don't like I love no, I love good. the texture of this space. Yeah. You know, I can spend time in individual pages of this issue, but it is just like compared to something like and again, when we're recording, we had just done the tweet storm for Excalibur 45. <laughs> that was a lot tighter. Like we had sort of four tight stories going on in an issue like this. This is a lot looser in part because it is mostly all in one location you know it is very kind of plot focused you know we have a thing happening the team is here they dig a hole they find the thing and then another conflict <laughs> is set up you know like it's a more traditional superhero comic in a lot of ways Completely and so I just yeah there's nothing there's nothing wrong with it I promise and like it still looks beautiful you know the characters feel like the characters I like some of the individual moments you know the redrawing of days of future past is very beautiful <laughs> Oh, and oh, no, I've got a final thought. I like the exchange that Rachel and Kitty have because they get oh. an exchange about Rachel shutting off the Phoenix Force. And that's important because mm-hmm. Rachel has been doing this character with growth with Megan. And we talked about all the reasons that we liked that a lot. But having her touch base with Kitty, you know, her soul connection person and, and sort of talking some of this stuff out. That's an important exchange here. And I'm glad that we had time for that. And just to keep things dynamic, they have that exchange and telepathic thought bubbles while they're <laughs> phasing through the earth, which is, you know, a way of keeping that lengthy conversation dynamic. So that was a nice scene. I like the cheek knowledge. There's no zippers on the costume. Yes. Yes. Uh, that yes. was neat. <laughs> now that you point that out she's like oh yeah i can't i can't get into it without the phoenix force okay um and yet yeah, kitty can so we we, ha- we she must have phased in because mm-hmm. <laughs> kitty can wear it so it's good that we're getting that touch base with so we have that confirmed as canon <laughs> It's it's what I think a lot of people have been wondering about. <laughs> We've talked about it on the show previously. So yeah, <laughs> um, Joe, final thoughts from you about this issue? Um, I just want to shout out, and it was already mentioned, but like the individual design of all the bodies of the robots. As like, there's one panel mm. of the team getting off the plane. Whenever you think of weird machinery, I think we all probably think Kirby because Kirby was a master of absurd machinery. This is not Kirby, but it's still weird machinery, and I love it. 
and, and I want more of this just kind of offness in how all these bodies are put together and, and like the, the dimensions and the proportions of these bodies is all just off and it is distinctly like each one of these is clearly coming from the same creator but it doesn't feel like that Kirby machinery and I just love that Davis was able to, to give me that kind of otherness feel of, of a Kirby machine but make it his own uh, as, as we're walking through this kind of graveyard of widget bodies it was really haunting that scene and I mean that's a great example of an individual scene from this issue that just really pops because there's so much going on there because of how much time he spent drawing it i mean he didn't just draw a bunch of generic standard robots he's put the time into making that concept of the care of the of the robot evolution come alive and then you know fires up our brains about what that means because we're seeing what that looks like staying there's a meeting of the round table No, I can't. I guess we will end things there. Um, we usually do a Sword Strokes Letters page. Um, I don't have the Sword Strokes Letters page because I could not find my copy of the issue, and our listeners would be very horrified at my comics um, storage <laughs> techniques. I was saying earlier off mic that as I was looking for this issue, I pulled open my storage ottoman and had, like, in a bag and board, but squished in half a copy of Anne Nascenti, John Romita Jr., Daredevil, in there, which is one of my favorite comics comic book runs of all time and I should not be squishing it in half inside of a storage ottoman and I am so 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 very sorry but again it wasn't a bag and board so you know there's that um anyway uh so we're not doing letters this month but we do want to give Joe a chance to plug all of his fabulous work so thank you so much again for joining us Joe and bringing your insight mm -hmm. to this episode if you would like people to find you online where can they find you and what work of yours should our listeners be rushing to check out uh, thank you again for having me. I love this discussion. Anytime I can do a deep dive about a single issue of a comic book, I think that's a good day. <laughs> when it can take over an hour to really break it all down, I'm, I'm with my people uh, in, in those moments. So thank you. Um, I host the Protagonist Podcast, where each week we talk about a great character and a great story. Mav and Anna have uh, been on there. And uh, it's an eclectic mix of stories. We've definitely talked about a lot of comic books, but we'll also talk about, you know, one week we might be talking about something from the literary canon, and the next week it's a sitcom episode, the next week a superhero comic book, and the next week a classic movie. Uh, we try and keep, keep it uh, eclectic in terms of the kinds of topics we're going to talk about over on the protagonist podcast. And I do edit that series of essay collections. So if you are interested in an academic look at superheroes, you could check out the ages of superheroes. So there's the ages of Superman, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, uh, and so on. And uh, that is probably for this audience, some of the work that'd be most interesting. Yeah. And I can speak to those collections being very accessible, useful for academics and accessible for non-academic as well they're great collections with names that you'll recognize including yeah, ours you. but not just ours <laughs> yeah. other names that you'll recognize from our show <laughs> yeah There's absolutely a a num scholars <laughs> a number of our guests have appeared in those books and some of our future guests as well yes uh thank you so 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 much again joe for joining us thank you so if i'm not mistaken this was our 50th episode right uh, uh can't we had because sword is drawn in mojo man 
No, and Sword is Drawn, Mojo Mayhem, and the one that's our 51st, because we had the one where we just talked about, like, our recap, the one we did on YouTube. Oh, okay, okay. If it was your 50th <laughs> episode, you'd have to, like, swap out a host and get new people in. And... <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God, I'm going to add, like, a record scratch, like, to that of, like, wait, was this our 50th episode? Should we have no. done something special? I was like, oh, no, it was the last episode. We already missed it. Don't worry about it. <laughs> we already missed it. We did a tweet storm. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. We did do that Perfect. to celebrate. Perfectly Congratulations planned. on 50 episodes, everybody, belatedly. <laughs> You know how we can celebrate by reading more Excalibur, which, okay. we will be, which we will be doing next week when we look at Excalibur number 49, Let There Be Dark, in which things get a little bit darker before they get better. We will be continuing with this storyline for a little while. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out the fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes, which you can find via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, do let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter, at goshgollywow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week, and more fun extras, including tweet storms. Thank you, Andrew and Matt, for another deep conversation. Thank you, Joe, for helping us put the magical metaphors in context. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our truly epic theme song. Play us out. If you don't, um, Kelly, I, I don't know if you want to put this on your on your splicing when you talk about the about the um, the you know us counting the fiftieth episode. But my one of my favorite moments with Joe is um, when we first decided we were going to do this show. We were talking about possibly doing the show uh, based on something that happened on Three PC, um, and um, that same weekend, Anna, you ended up being or recording a guest spot on Protagonist, and. Um, then, like, I guess later that night, Joe texts me. He goes, so are you doing a podcast about Excalibur? Uh, I'm like, um, we're talking about it, maybe. And Joe's like, I volunteer as tribute. Okay. So that was <laughs> I think he. I think he was, for me, the first person to actually ask to be on the show. Because I don't know, Anna had had anybody ask earlier, but... Um, it was literally the day after we had talked about it the first time. <laughs> Joe wow. Joe wanted to be on the podcast before there was even a podcast. Yes. <laughs> well, what a perfect way to celebrate our 51st episode. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> special, special collector's edition. <laughs>